We live in an age of scandals. And sometimes it seems that our news media runs on the fuel of moral failure. Who did what? And who doesn't enjoy a tasty morsel of gossip? Governor Andrew Cuomo is only the latest in the long list of scandalized leaders. And of course, Christian leaders are not immune either. We think of recent scandals surrounding people like Robbie Zacharias and Bill Hybels. And this last summer, Christianity Today had a 12-part podcast on the rise and fall of Mars Hill, the influential Seattle church once led by Mark Driscoll. Maybe some of you have listened to that. We tend to think of scandals in morally negative terms as something that is brought on by the failure of a leader. But good people can be scandalous as well. And if we take the New Testament at its word, along with two millennia of church history, we could safely make the claim that the most scandalous person who has ever lived is Jesus Christ. He scandalized the Jewish world of his own time, and he continues to scandalize the world today through those who live according to his teachings. Our gospel reading this morning is from John 6. We're in John 6 for the second week in a row. And last week, Kevin uh, took us through the Bread of Life discourse, an astonishing, beautiful passage of Scripture where Jesus claims to be the manna come down from heaven that provides eternal nourishment. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. What an amazing statement. A type of bread that gives eternal life. But there's also an aspect of this teaching about eating spiritual food, which is, well, unsavory. For many, this teaching is hard to swallow and difficult to stomach. And at the end of John 6, we see that after Jesus speaks these amazing words, the words of eternal life, some of his disciples, and note that they are described as disciples. This isn't a curious crowd of day trippers. They take offense at Jesus' words. Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard this teaching, they said, this is a hard saying. In the original Greek, the word order or syntax is difficult is this word. Difficult comes first in the sentence, placing emphasis on the exacting character of Jesus' teaching. Yes, Jesus' words present an opportunity. They are an invitation. But they also represent a demand, a moral challenge that cannot be ignored. The Greek adjective translated difficult in the ESV, skleros, can also be rendered hard, harsh, severe, stern, repulsive, or offensive. The same word is used in the parable of the tenants. The servant who, remember the servant who hides his talent and then is interrogated by the returning master? 
he responds, I need you to be a hard man. In this sense, difficult can also be exacting. Now, Jesus does have the opportunity to win back some of his offended disciples. But instead, he pushes the teaching further and harder. He reminds them that the words he speaks are spirit and life in verse 63. And then he tells them in verse 64 that some of them do not truly believe. And then we see in verse 66 the result of this unrelenting approach. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. A few didn't drop off. Many did. These were hard teachings to accept. Yes, there was something mysterious and mystical about this teaching that was difficult to understand, but the disciples don't appear to be offended by what they don't understand, but rather by what they do understand. John Calvin argued that ultimately, the hardness in these sayings was in their hearts, not in the teaching of Christ. So yes, Jesus' teaching here is difficult. It is hard. And this leads to a significant falling away. But what specifically here is difficult to accept about Jesus' teaching? This is a rich, complex passage. And a number of explanations can be provided. First, we see that people took exception to Jesus' purported origins. Jesus said that he's the bread come down from heaven. This trips people up. Verse 42, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? In Hebrew, the word manna literally means, what is it? It's a question. And when Jesus speaks of himself as the manna from heaven, the people ask the question, who is it? Who does Jesus think he is anyway? We know him. We know where he grew up. He's one of us. He's local. But he's starting to sound local. <laughs> Sorry for the bilingual pun. The things Jesus says about himself, frankly, sound quite arrogant. The church father Chrysostom argued that the primary offense of Jesus in this passage was connected to his, his exaggerated claims that he's making about himself. With all these I am statements, Jesus seems to be rather full of himself here. And on the eve of the crucifixion, Jesus' claims scandalized the Sanhedrin as well. And yet for some, it was the idea of a lowly, suffering Messiah, which was most scandalous. And this leads us to a second explanation for the disciples' defection. Jesus' violent, bloody death. This is implicit in the words in verse 51. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is sacrificial language. And the people would have known it. Jesus is the bread of life. Yes, of life. But for something to become food for the life of others, it has to die. Norman Wurzba puts it this way. Eating is the daily reminder of creaturely mortality. We eat to live, knowing that without food we will starve and die. But to eat, we must also kill, realizing that without the death of others, microbes, insects, plants, and animals, we can have no food. 
This is also true on the spiritual level. To become the bread of life, Jesus would have to lay down his life. And a crucified Messiah was a scandal. And this leads to another possible explanation for the defection of these disciples. Jesus didn't fulfill their expectations. Remember on the previous day, the day that Jesus feeds 5,000 people, the people were able to eat as much bread and fish as they wanted. It was an all-you-can-eat special. And this is impressive. A man who could produce food on demand. They were so impressed that they wanted to make him king instantly by force. Jesus gets away. Many of these people had experienced actual hunger, perhaps a time when the crops had been poor. This is very different from our experience today, when a toilet paper shortage is a major crisis. These people knew hunger, hunger and so they wanted this man to become their king. But Jesus' point here is not merely that he can provide bread. He doesn't say, I will give you a lifetime supply of bread. He says, I am the bread doesn't he? And this is something else that is offensive, that Jesus' claim as the bread of life, the exclusive way of salvation, is a scandal. It's offensive to the Jews of his time, and it's offensive today in an age of relativism and multiculturalism. Martin Luther saw this claim of Jesus as the chief reason for the disciples' defection. They could not stomach the idea that Jesus was the only way to God that Jesus was true food and drink for the deepest needs of life. This is the moral demand of Jesus' teaching. One must believe in the Son to have life. Verse 47, whoever believes has eternal life. And of course, this is the thesis statement of the entire Gospel of John. It's summed up perfectly in John 3.16. Belief is required. And this leads to one other reason that the disciples took offense. Surely it has something to do with the character of the metaphor that he uses here, especially how he talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood has eternal life. The people get hung up on this metaphor. How can he give us his flesh to eat? Cannibalism is a shocking prospect for us but even more so for the ancient Jews who had very strict dietary laws. And not only was human meat off the menu, so was blood of any kind. Yet Jesus speaks of drinking blood. Augustine saw this as the primary stumbling block for the many disciples who fell away. Jesus seems to be advocating a kind of cannibalism, something which was taboo in the ancient world and thankfully still is today. Some accused the early Christians of being cannibals. And this misunderstanding led to hatred and persecution. In his second apology, uh, Justin Martyr refutes the accusation that Christians drank human blood during the Eucharist. And Tertullian, another church father, responded to the charge that Christians had an initiation rite which involved killing and eating an infant. These were accusations that were made against Christians that came out of a misunderstanding of the Eucharist. But make no mistake, the imagery of eating flesh and drinking blood is offensive. It's a graphic way of saying that people must take Christ into their innermost being like they would 
food. But the metaphor, for all its graphic offensiveness, is conceptually connected to the incarnation. The word was made flesh so that we could behold God's glory. The word became the bread of life so that we can taste and see that the Lord is good. People were offended by Christ for different reasons during his ministry. And he continues to offend for various reasons today, including some of the reasons we just looked at. So we must remember something very important. Jesus and the good news which he preached and with which we are entrusted causes offense. It's it's built in. We think of the beautiful names or titles of Christ. And many are here in the Gospel of John, the so-called I am statements. Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the light of the world. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the true vine. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And here in John 6, as we've seen, he is the bread of life. But we need to add another title from John 6, something that we see throughout the four uh, Gospels. Jesus is the scandalon, the stumbling stone, the scandal. We see this in verse 61 in Jesus' question. Do you take offense at this? The Greek phrase translated take offense is skandalize. This is from the verb which means to stumble or to offend. The noun form in the Greek is skandalon. It's where we get our word scandal from. And the most basic meaning of the Greek term scandalon is a trap, especially a spring-loaded trap. And in ancient Greek literature, the term was often used figuratively, metaphorically, to describe a snare for an enemy or a cause of moral stumbling. Hence, our word scandal. And the English word scandal first appears in the Middle Ages in a religious context to describe someone whose behavior brought discredit to the Christian faith. The concept of scandal on appears throughout the New Testament and can be translated as stumbling block or stumbling stone, obstacle, impediment, or cause of indignation. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul speaks very frankly about the scandal of the cross. Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. The word for stumbling block here is scandalon in the Greek. It's a trap that hinders faith or obedience. It's an occasion for unbelief. Now, it seems counterintuitive to describe Jesus as a scandal on, right? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, right? He's not an obstacle, right? Well, he's both. And Michael Card speaks about this in his song, Scandal On, where he says, Upon the path of life, there lies this stubborn scandal on, and all who come this way must be offended. To some he is a barrier, to others he's the way, for all should know the scandal of believing. He will be the truth that will offend them one and all, a stone that makes men stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And many will be broken so that he can make them whole but many will be crushed and lose their own soul. We don't tend to think of Jesus as a stumbling block and scandal. 
It's not one of the images that we like to cherish, but both Testaments present him this way, going back to Isaiah. And it's an apt description, because Jesus' life from the very beginning is beset with scandal. It began before he was born, when his mother Mary became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. How many people believe that? We know that Joseph did, but who else did or didn't? How many of the locals bought that explanation? The scandal continues at his actual birth. The king of kings and creator of the universe was born in a stable. He was placed in a cattle trough. Though scandalous, these circumstances fit beautifully with what we see in John 6. Because they happened in Bethlehem, which means house of bread in Hebrew. So the bread of life was born in the house of bread and spent his first night in a manger, which is a place for food, not people. The symbolism runs deep. And of course, the scandal of Christ continues into his ministry and comes to a head. We see it here in John 6. His teaching has power and authority. It draws people, but it's controversial. There were many hard sayings before the hard saying about the bread of life, and many ones come after as well. Here's another scandal on passage from Matthew 5. If your right hand offends you, if it scandalizes you, cut it off. Jesus also befriends sinners, often the most scandalous people in the society, tax collectors, prostitutes, lepers. And Jesus pronounces forgiveness. That's a scandal because only God can do that. Of course, the ultimate scandal was the crucifixion. It was the humiliating, a humiliating form of death, a spectacle which Rome used to proclaim its power and instill fear. And it was gruesome, violent, bloody. It was a ruthless form of torture. But this is exactly what Jesus is talking about in John 6 when he says he would lay down his life for the life of the world, that he would give his flesh for the life of the world. The Son of Man, the manna from heaven, the true vine who gives eternal life to those who abide in him, was placed on a twisted tree, the cross, a tree of death, which in the greatest plot twist of all time became the new tree of life. So Jesus is a scandal on, a scandal for the people of his earthly ministry and a scandal in the modern Western world, which increasingly is turning its back on the values of traditional Christian faith. And we would do well in our day and age to remember this, that we have to be faithful to the message that Jesus preached. Michael Card also warns of the danger of watering down the message. He says, It seems today the scandal on offends no one at all. The image we present can be stepped over. Could it be that we are like the others long ago? Will we ever learn that all who come must stumble? The Greek word for hard in our gospel reading, as in hard saying, derives from the verb to dry. And so it has the connotation of something that is hard to touch, unpleasant to touch, rough, uneven. And so there's another lesson to be learned here about the nature of Jesus' teaching. Many of his teachings are intended to be rough to the touch. We need to keep this in mind. 
because we do great disservice to God's truth when we try to make it more user-friendly, more palatable, less rough. And part of the reason I'm preaching this morning, part of the reason I'm worshiping at this church in this place, part of the reason I'm seeking ordination in this diocese is because I attended a church where the sermons came to lack punch, to lack the sharp edge of the scriptural passages that were supposed to inspire them. And I would get excited when there was a difficult passage because I thought, okay, finally, we're going to hear, we're going to get something that pinches a little bit. And I was curious to see how the passage would be handled. But over time, I noticed that the tendency was to tone down any offensive elements. That a lot of energy was sort of put into making tough biblical passages acceptable. It was like the preacher had sandpaper. And he was kind of rubbing down the rough edges to make them smooth to the touch. The rough wood of the cross became smooth like a handrail. And there was no danger of getting a splinter. Yes, we must contextualize. Paul exemplifies this in his Mars Hill discourse in Athens in Acts 17. And I've seen people in bus stations and train stations standing on their soapboxes and shouting out God's word from the top of their lungs. It's quite literally tone-deaf evangelism. And I didn't notice many people paying attention to them. At the same time, we also must embrace the scandal of the cross. Paul said he was not ashamed, and he encouraged Timothy not to be ashamed of the cross, because it's the power of God. So I spent most of the sermon talking about the defectors, those who are offended by the scandal of Christ. I want to finish the sermon on a more positive note by speaking of those who remain faithful. We see that after many disciples turn their back on Jesus and no longer walk with him, Jesus turns to the twelve and he says, do you want to go away as well? And in verses 68 and 69, we see that famous declaration of faith by Peter. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is an amazing passage. And some have seen this as a confident declaration of faith, that Peter remains true to, to Christ in the face of apostasy. And that's true, but surely Jesus' teaching was difficult for the twelve as well. And it must have been discouraging to see all the people hit the road. Peter seems to be saying then as well that though the scandal is hard to bear, he will be true to Christ because Christ is the only way. There's true faith, excuse me, there's true faith here, but there's a kind of soberness as well. And we see this later that Peter gets tested, doesn't he? And he fails famously when he denies Christ three times. He was broken to pieces as he stumbled because of the scandal of knowing Christ. But after the resurrection, he was restored. And so it is with us. We must be broken by Jesus, the scandalon, the great stumbling stone, which the builders rejected in order to be made whole. This is not the safe and predictable Jesus that is preached from many pulpits today. Ultimately, there's a bit of danger here. There's risk. 
And ultimately, you cannot step over or move around the true scandal on. Peter understood this lesson all too well. So let me finish with an invitation from the second chapter of his first epistle. Come to Jesus, the living stone that was rejected by men, but which is chosen and precious in the sight of God. Amen.